The Ornstein and Chapman podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite betting company. It's Norwich v Liverpool this weekend. Are Liverpool going to continue their march to the title or could the Canaries clip their wings? With Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to build your own personalised bet. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic, bringing you exclusive and original stories and interviews, offering agenda-setting insight from inside the game from David and other writers from across The Athletic. For this episode, we are joined by Gordon Taylor, Chief Executive of the Professional Footballers Association. He has led the Players' Union since 1981. Well, Gordon, the first question I want to ask you is that we're in the midst of this sort of so-called winter break now. It's a bit of a, a hybrid version with some Premier League games one weekend and, and then another. But there seems to be this common consensus around the game that it's come too late, that the injuries have already occurred. And we packed in extra games around the Christmas time to make this winter break possible, which kind of defeats the object. As the head of the union representing these players, what do you make of it? Is this winter break too late? And how are your players feeling? Well, certainly uh, the fact is for some time now we've been really concerned about the congestion on fixtures because the lead from the top with regard to FIFA, it's not been the best with regard to a duty of care to because the, the very best players um, are usually required to play. You know, it's international games and tournaments, uh, FIFA and UEFA, of course and also um, be featuring in the top teams at home that inevitably are most successful in the different competitions that we have. So that lead hasn't been so good, particularly when we're thinking the way that FIFA now wants to develop its World Club Championship, because it's been very envious of UEFA and the Champions League. And then with UEFA and the new president, um, is wanted to look after the smaller countries. So I think there's going to be at least another minimum of about four more Champions League games. And it's really just going to the well too many times. And, and it's, as you say, a break is good. It has to be good. Because when, uh, ironically, UEFA did research uh, into the midwinter break and it showed that all those countries where the players had had that midwinter break then they had much less injuries towards the end of the season than those countries that hadn't had the break. So it's a question of where you get it in, how practical it is. But as I think Steve Bruce has said, you know, they would have had uh, some 12 games in the first four months of the season, and then you've got about seven games in a month. I think we've, we've had 74 injuries um, Premier League players' injuries between December 20th and round about January the 1st. Uh, Aston Villa have lost players with a, nearly 500 um, days lost uh, with their injury list. I think they had five games in 12 days. Uh, Newcastle had 
nine players injured. I think four of them were in one game against Leicester. Um, the figures are not good at all. And from that point of view, we, we keep saying, well, Christmas is special. Well, it, it is, but it doesn't mean to I think Boxing Day is brilliant. It always has been. And I'm a big lover of the history of the game. And, you know, why would you <clears throat> not be there to play on Boxing Day when it's our big winter sport? But it's all around that as well. Is so, this a breaking point? Well, it, breaking point is perhaps a good word because when you've got, you know, lads like Harry Kane come January 1st, then hamstrings, the sort of injuries that are coming with stress. Marcus Rashford. Uh, Marcus Rashford and, and quite a number of others. And in a way, you look at other sports and with, I think, uh, Jofra Archer, I mean, with bowling like that, mm. it's stress. And when you see the, I think there's a heavy intensity with our rugby union team and you see the injuries there. And basically, you wouldn't, you know, athletes wouldn't do international competition to such frequency. And, well, you wouldn't even run uh, horses as as often as footballers are. So from that point of view, it's crying out, but it's just a question of a balance between the commercial interests and the money coming in and the fitness and longevity of the players, even though in this day and age the game is faster than ever, balls are lighter, pitches are better. But you would think with the advancement in medicine, the average career would be getting longer, but it's not. So what do you do then? What do you do as a, as a players' union? Who do you talk Chief to? Pro has been is yes. the International Players' Union where we sit uh, at the table with FIFA and the players have a say. Bobby, Bobby Barnes, my deputy in London, is our representative. He's European president of FIFA Pro. And this is staying on the agenda till um, until some things are uh, hopefully uh, sorted out. Um, it's a bit interesting when you hear people say, oh, well, any break just stops the momentum and it's in favour of the... A break is a break for everybody because it's not just the physical rest. It's also, you, you know, you can't play a football game without feeling, feeling tired mentally at the end when there is, you know, you need to be on top of everything. Are your players pleading with you and saying they need rest? And- no, they're not playing, not pleading. Funnily enough, you know... Sometimes I think things need to be done in spite of, really, not because of, because players love playing. And certainly if you've got a big squad, you see it as your chance. If you're not a first-team regular, you see it as a chance to get in there. It's almost like when we've spent millions on our academies and then suddenly they're given a chance because the club's banned from buying players. And you've got, you know, Frank plays his youngsters so successfully at Chelsea. And when they're given a chance, they show they can do it. So what would you do? What would you do to ease the burden on them? I think you'd have to have a substantial midwinter break. And I think uh, you'd look at, I think, well, you never know with our weather, but I think it has to be worldwide, to tell you the truth, as best we can, or certainly European-wide because of the variation in times and weather and everything else. Talking about this country, I would, I would look at the month of January. Because that's what I'm trying to... If it's on FIFPRO's agenda and on your agenda, who would make who makes the final decision within football? So if you want January in this country, is that an FA and Premier League thing? If you want it, it European-wide, that's a UEFA thing. Yes. If you go beyond that, that's I a know. FIFA thing. Is exactly. that right? Yeah. No, you're spot yeah. on. Right. You're spot on. And I think 
first things first, and I think we have the opportunity to do it in this country first with agreement between the FA and the Premier League, and they need to work together also with our backing. Ironically, then you'd say, why not your Football League players? But the Football League would also see it as a chance to highlight their competition as well, probably at that time. So it does need the agreement of everybody, but I just think... The very fact you see so much money spent on our top players, I find it crazy that they then can't think to look after them. So you say the month of January, but how realistic is that? How confident are you that we could even bring this to the table? How confident? Well, in so much as it's something, you know, if I'd have been asked, and was able to do it, I would have done a long time ago. So to say you're confident, but the very fact that there has been a breakthrough, I think a bit like if you look at other things in football, VAR, suddenly once it was a question of is the ball over the goal line, is it goal, suddenly that was going to extend. We haven't got that right, of course, yet, when you're getting offsides given on toenails and half a hand. But I would think now that there is a breakthrough on the midwinter break, I think it's every chance it can be properly refined and be as practical as possible within your you mentioned uh premier league players and then football league players in general within your organization are they do they have separate concerns or do do concerns that they have in your experience do they do they cross over or are they two separate groups I don't know whether you know Fleetwood Mac song and it mentions about players only love you when they're playing right yes and yeah. uh there's a lot, a lot of truth in that because that that is the situation. And uh, those who are not in the team, you know, would probably maybe not look forward to the midwinter break um, because they know that there will be opportunities for them to play. But I think looking after the overall interest, I think midwinter break would be appreciated. The only trouble is, is that. It's what I was saying about what is best for them because there'll be players who've got momentum who are going well, there'll be players who've just got back in the team and suddenly there'll be a break. On the other hand, there'll be players who will be injured and thinking this this will this will be good. So I think over and above there's not there's not going to be any player who would deny that unless it then makes a season longer and as David has just said, squeezes into other areas so it becomes a little bit artificial because what you're gaining with your break, you're suddenly trying to put a quart into a pint pot somewhere else. So that's why I think there needs to be a strong lead from FIFA and UEFA and that's not coming because they're wanting more games than ever and creating more income than ever. They only care about the money, is that your view? Um, I would say they'd put the money first and foremost without necessarily putting the players first and foremost. There was a time when I would be at your offices interviewing you almost weekly on pretty much every subject to do with uh, professional footballers in this country. It's not happened so much recently. Um, uh, You've had a lot going on at the PFA. Say that again. (laughs) (laughs) Why have you not spoken on the various issues and why did you agree to do so today? Well, I'm happy to speak on lots of issues, but I'm also uh, quite concerned with it. It's been a type of civil war within the PFA because uh, the rules and uh, need to tell you really, the PFA is we have a staff originally 
I was going to become a coach. Uh, I played the game. I'd qualified as a coach. I'd done coaching sessions. I was asked to take over from my predecessor, Cliff Lloyd. Uh, there was only a staff of, I think, four then in the Corn Exchange buildings in Manchester. And he said, would I think about taking over and looked at it. It looked a great challenge. There'd been the removal of the maximum wage. Things hadn't gone that well with industrial relations within the game of the football league then so i decided to give that a go and it's developed we have a staff of over 60 now and they are what the pfa is about but we also have a management committee who are to be current members because we are a players union and we have trustees made up of a lot of uh, distinguished former players who look after the charity and suddenly we've got a situation where the chair of the PFA was looking to stay on when he wasn't playing uh, and the rules are saying it should be about players, the management committee, that's there at the coalface, shouldn't be about non-contract players and so suddenly the rules were challenged and next minute we have what we've got with a different view, different opinions and um, media campaigns as well. So. We've had to stand up and be counted, and I thought in, the, in this case then we'll have a proper independent review, we'll be looked at objectively, and also the same has occurred with the charity because we have all, all the work we do with education and research and hardship and equalities, uh, diversity, women's football is looked after by the PFA charity, which is the under the control of the trustees and then management committee look after the accident fund and the general fund so it has caused a split in the pfa uh, i can only work and my staff in accordance with what they agree so from that point of view it's made things uh, particularly busy but also to some extent caused a uh, uh, difficulty in being as flexible and moving forward as quickly as we'd like when there are lots of issues to evolve but having said that my staff have been brilliant I'm very proud of my staff and proud of what they do I believe we are not just the oldest sporting union in the world but the strongest and the most efficient you faced huge criticism you, you've said that you'll be leaving the role at the end of the review and um, a lot of questions have been asked about why that review is taking so long. Um, well, it depends where the criticism comes from, whether it's valid or whether it's not. I've also had a lot of praise from people who know the PFA and know me and know the way we do business. Do you think you should go sooner, which is what some people are saying? Well, if I'd, you know, it's the same as playing football. If you listen to somebody in the crowd and you've got you've got to be true to yourself and uh, being true to myself i know the job that we do i know the quality of my staff and from that point of view i it's not my choice anyway it'd be a choice of the members but uh, we're having an independent review to look at the way that things are run and have been run we're having a look a review also by the charity commission and there's agreed to be uh, that standoff until uh, such things are sorted so from that point of view um, I've also said uh, when that gets done and gets sorted and we know the way ahead, then there's a recruitment process and that's how it will be. When do you expect to go? Well, it's not in my hands. I, I don't decide what the PFA do. I'm chief executive, but I, I, I do work with all my staff. 
I don't take any decision on my own without support from both staff and management committee in those areas I've mentioned and trustees. It's not far from it being a one-man band. I, you know, I consider it as a team and it's collective and it's solid and that's how you work best, the same as football. But it's uh, Or when the, will the review be done? The review finished. will be done when it's done. I, I'm not in charge of the review. That That's being done by sport resolutions and I stay well out of that unless I'm asked to speak to them. And there's also a charity commission review as well. And our charity, you know, as I say, it, it's a PFA purely. We don't go banging on doors. We, our subscriptions will not keep the PFA going because they are uh, to some extent nominal because of the deals that we do with regard to our members, with the Premier League, the FA and the Football League, with regard to television income. And that's our main source of income, and that funds our community programmes, our research, equalities, etc., training for players, an average eight-year career, women's football, sporting chance clinic, uh, mental health and welfare. I, there's another union that does as much as we do in that in that sense, I'd be pleased to see it and hear it. You, you mentioned you would listen to criticism if it was valid. Has any of the criticism, in your opinion, been valid? Well, it'd be stupid to put your head in the sand. And if somebody was Absolutely. saying something, and from that point of view, I would listen and uh, respond. And that's why I think if there's any doubt about the way the PFA is being run, I think it's important that it be looked at objectively and independently. And uh, that's why I was the first to say... And to tell my staff who are all worried that, look, you don't, don't need to be frightened of anything. You can stand up and be counted. We can stand up and be counted. If you believe in what we're doing, it's not as though we have our heads in the sand. We're not as though we're not bothering about evolving and, and progressing because we are. That's the nature of life and it's the nature of football. And you see that every day with things changing. Is there any criticism that has particularly hurt you or... or bothered you such as the repeated um, questions about your salary well I don't know whether people think I'd write my own salary out it isn't like that at all and I can assure you that that's not the case and the thing is when I'm representing players I would always do my best for them and they we don't hold the gun to people's heads uh, the same as when I'm negotiating it has to be reasoned, it has to be logical, it has to be realistic. And they feel that compared to other chief executives in the game and for what I bring in, that I think there's a saying that every labour is worth this higher. And from that point of view, I wouldn't say to anybody that they shouldn't look to try and uh, capitalise on their ability. But having said that, it's all down to what you do. And it's as I say, I don't write out my own salary. That's what uh, PFA think of me and the job they do you can when you think about the deals I do and the negotiations I do it's for you to make a judgment all I would say is that if we didn't do those deals our subscriptions would have to go up by about five ten thousand pounds per member per member per year per year if you talk about the work that the PFA do and you mentioned negotiating deals. I don't know whether this happens or not, but I would imagine in a situation like Berry, yeah, or Macclesfield, yeah, players aren't being paid. Players are losing Bolton their Bolton Wanderers. Bolton players aren't losing their Oldham, jobs. Oldham, Southend. Tell me 
what the PFA do in those situations right. where players don't get paid to help their 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 union members? Where they're not getting paid, uh, we're then in touch with the club. We're in touch with the league. It's normally the football league, of course, and they get uh, a warning light. I've said to the league they've got to. Just last week was the latest of a number of meetings where we're talking about improving the football creditor rule and also about the rules for fit and proper persons. Now that, of course, Berry has happened, that very same person who did take charge wouldn't be allowed. But that's too late because palpably whoever took over the club was not a fit and proper person to keep that club going. And the warning signs were there and we told the league about the warning signs and we told the league about Bolton Wanderers and we and well, they must know because we were looking to lend the club money to pay the players their wages, which is exactly what we do and why we have our reserves. And the Football League were very much aware of that and the same with Macclesfield and the same with Southend and you name it. Our first job will be to get the players the money they're owed under the contracts because the respectability of the league and the leagues and the PFA in this country is and credibility is very much down to that. That's the core of our work to make sure that contracts are worth what they say they are and that's why so many foreign players come in here appreciate what we've got here when in their own country you know that a club can just refuse to pay wages and nothing's done about it and now we've raised it at fifa level and it's it's going to be an overdue payables rule and the money is being made there and they've got to look after all the players in the world if such things happen do you think the pfa has become increasingly a union representing lower league and former players rather than the top Premier League players. I was at an event recently where Mino Raiola said that most of his clients don't even know what the PFA is. Um, And you mentioned the subscription fees would have to go up if you didn't strike such deals. Well, the likes of Paul Pogba probably don't really care about that, whereas at a lower level and a retired player level, it really is critical. Well, ironically, of course, as the game's got more and more money with satellite television and sponsorship, etc. Uh, agents uh, inevitably have come into the game and you've got agents who are also responsible for owning clubs, etc. now. so And there's never been that same control over the agents for various reasons, coming from FIFA or UEFA or the national associations. So from that point of view, many players uh, will not, come to the PFA first will come last when everything's gone wrong because I can tell you the vast majority of players wants to finish playing and agents are no longer quite as interested in them as they were that's when a lot of problems occur uh, having said that we'll work with agents and there's some agents who, who are, you know that is their best interest to look after the players and I'm not saying they don't do a good job because obviously some do uh, but from that point of view, it's a question, and, and these days as well, you've got families involved in looking after players uh, because of the sort of money that is available and uh, agents. And then often it will be with ourselves as a last resort when things have gone wrong. But the very fact is we're negotiating contracts for players and discussing discipline and 
all manner of things that are relevant, not just for players at the lower end of the league, but players at the top end of the league because it's their working conditions. And all I can say is the foreign players, players who've come from outside of England, and we've been, that should be to our credit, that we've been able to assimilate and are the most cosmopolitan players' union in the world. We provide more players for World Cups than any other country. And the one thing I said to you is what I'll say again is that they know what they sign is what they'll get. And that's why uh, if something like Berry happens and we still, we haven't forgotten, we're still looking to try and get Berry all the players their own because they've not all got fixed up, that that goes to the very root and branch of what we're about. Now, we've got to tell you about Stitch Fix because it's an online personal styling service that takes the work out of dressing well. It's a fun and light touch. All you've got to do to get started is go to stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic. You fill in a style quiz. You tell Stitch Fix about your personal style and aesthetic, budget, size and shape, fit challenges, clothing needs and wants. And then a personal stylist basically sends you five items of clothing, each one of them hand-picked for you from Stitch Fix's selection of 100 brands, including established names, cool emerging designers and exclusive brands that you won't find anywhere else. You try on everything at home, style with other items in your wardrobe, buy what you love and send back the rest. It really is low risk. For your stylist time, you pay a styling charge of just a tenner, and that is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy at home. You try before you buy at home. Delivery and returns are free both ways. There is no subscription necessary. Uh, I have to say, I really enjoyed using it. And I'm not just saying it because they sponsor us. But I filled in the uh, size and shape accurately. So I actually got clothes that fitted me rather than pretending to be a size that I wasn't. And I didn't send uh, anything back. So it was really quite quick, simple, and I like the clothes. Uh, all you've got to do to get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast is go to stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic right now. That's Stitch Fix. I'll spell it for you. S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co.uk slash athletic. As part of the evolution of the PFA as and when it it occurs. Do you think it needs to become a younger organisation that can associate closer to the younger players, or do you think We're that's doing... irrelevant? <laughs> no, it's not irrelevant at all. Of course, it it's good. I think it's great when we have staff and we we recruit young staff and we're recruiting young staff all the time, and it's one of the reasons why um, we thought when the football league were having their annual awards dinner. In a weekend that we normally consider, suddenly I thought, well, oh, available week after. Uh, it's deja vu. Why not Manchester? It's as it's important uh, part in football. God, and being a Mancunian, you know, I feel at times it's every right to say it's the centre of a football world, the same as maybe London or maybe Birmingham, but to have Manchester and also... Uh, to be prepared to have change and take the views of your younger members. It's quite difficult for any... If you're members of your union in your profession, uh, unions aren't normally... They haven't been noted to be getting stronger. took a bad hit when it was the miners' union, etc., and all that trouble and political trouble. But sporting unions and associations have been becoming stronger. 
and that's been a, a lead from the PFA and part of us being part of Fief Pro. But if you're asking, of course, I, d- I never, I don't intend to go on forever. I do, I do think at times, you know, it's not me who's insisting. I'm asked to stay on. I'm, you must. But you could choose it's to not go. Gordon you, Taylor. Could you choose to go if you wanted I to. I could choose to go today if I right. wanted. Yeah, right. but you know, but you don't want to. It's not a question of that. I don't want to go and leave it in the hands of people who, who've been making some of the accusations, which are false, really. And, you know, from that point of view, I want to make sure it's in the right hands. And that's why it would be a proper process, an independent process. But I don't want to spend 40 years at the PFA and then seeing it all uh, So you think some of the people irreparably. that are within the PFA at the moment who've made the accusations against you... Well, they... no, not within the PFA. I mean, staff-wise, right. when I say... My staff are brilliant. Okay. Uh, but you would worry it's not your staff that would replace you? Uh, no. I, if there's a proper and due process, that's fine. I'm talking about the people. I'm naming names, of course. Everybody knows what happened with the chairman, and he's, that's what he feels. And I've just told you about the difference of opinion. And uh, there you go. If that evolution that you talk about doesn't happen. Do you fear for the long-term future of the PFA? Do you think it could cease to exist? That would be very dramatic, and it's not something that I could control in the future. Uh, When I'm no longer there, I'm just hoping that there's there's enough people who believe in the job we've done and the merits and quality of the staff that we have because we've been a leader in sporting unions across the world and certainly a leader in football unions in developing FIFA Pro, which started with just six countries and now has over 50 worldwide. And I was president of that and then uh, couldn't do that forever and was you know, happy to uh, step down and concentrate on my own backyard. There's enough to do in, my, in what you say is my own backyard. And there's been issues that you've seen about dementia where we've been working on research into head injuries and repetitive heading and dealing with former players for the last two three decades and it's as though you know the pfa has to be responsible for sorting that out we work with the fa it needs a governing body to be involved we started research and they said the research has to be done going forwards can't look at backwards and that was put into the hands of their medical committee and neurosurgeons that didn't work out they didn't get any causal links then and since then we've got about three or four uh, areas of research which is trying to establish a definitive link and as you've seen there's been changes in concussion treatment and talking about repetitive heading and uh, talking about the value of football in general as opposed to you know is it harmful to you other issues have been uh, players film schemes which we advised against film schemes that players are advised to go into and wrongly and we advised against that and there's been a tax bill and suddenly you know we to take on the tax man when that is a big job bearing in mind uh, the complexities of such issues and what's happened so there's there's been areas of course that have hit the papers but you know we're not infallible uh, on the other hand I'd When you talk about criticism, I believe that needs to be fair criticism and I'm perfectly prepared to uh, defend our corner. Do you understand the criticism, therefore? Is it fair criticism over your handling of dementia? Well, 
I, I think from that point of view, I think it's unfair because we are lay people. And even when we've had research which we've been prepared to fund, the the links and definitive links are really uh, quite complex, bearing in mind also that there's many benefits to playing football. I didn't want football laid out as something that is just purely harmful when I'm glad to see there are certain benefits that you can't ignore with with being fit and it's still a question of is it genetic, is it lifestyle and where do we go? It's not just it's not just dementia we have to deal with. We have former players who need treatment for bad knees and need new hips and also it's about looking after as people are getting older, looking after them as well. But and, even, even and not the forgetting slight... either that you know, my mother had dementia and and women have dementia to a greater extent and and they've never even seen a football. But even the slightest link would would therefore involve further investigation right. no. out of responsibility to your members, would it not? Yes, it would. And I think Because that, that's what you're there to do. It's called a duty of care. Absolutely. Yeah. But also I wouldn't say all the medical problems of the world should be laying at the feet of the PFA when we have FIFA, we have UEFA. Once the coroner made his decision in Jeff Astle's case, we were in touch with the family again because we'd been helping Jeff during his later years uh, with help. And that's when we approached the Football Association and said we need to research this much more thoroughly now that is out. We didn't get a lot of uh, cooperation from the leagues at the time and it was down to the FA Medical Committee. Uh, we're lay people. We've been approached by specialists and neurosurgeons and reacted to that approach and said we are prepared to, you know, to undertake research. And again, there is a committee now made up. We're just observers in there, but it's made up of... of uh, neurological experts who are now taking the research further and looking to ask the next question. The, the whole thing is it's about a duty of care in the same way as knowing that, you know, there's a great danger of you, what, if you're going to, as it was with smoking, etc. Uh, that it's about telling about the warnings, but also... Um, but then from a layperson's point of view, as soon, mm. as, as, soon as the experts make clear a link of any kind, mm. you then have the duty uh, representing your players well, we and your organisation yeah. you to, to then go as far yeah, as possible have, well, to you, investigate it. Exactly. So when you, so you when, have a look at our magazine and, and, and our magazine's coming out regularly and gives a, you know, gives a total uh, calendar list of how many years and how long and what we've been doing and where we're at and where we're at now. So we, Dr Willie Stewart's research, yeah, which, which we funded was with the FA... So former professional footballers are three and a, link, yeah. are yeah. three and a half times more likely to die of dementia or neurological disease than the rest of the match population. Yeah, with the, so with the data you... that was available in Scotland and also about the fact that uh, not forgetting that they were fitter as well and with regard to dealing with cancer and heart attacks, there was a lot of positives there, but it was also laid out that more research needed to be done to establish the, a definitive causal link. So when you hear that, when you got that research, what then What then happens? Because the Well, I'll tell you what happened, you've asked me, and, yeah. and if you give me opportunity to. Straight away, we spoke with the Football Association and said we can no, you know, cannot ignore this research, you cannot ignore these figures. 
We now need to develop this research even further. We now need to be even more careful with concussion, which is a significant part of that and is there for everybody to see and know how to deal with. When you have managers wanting players to go back on, when you have players themselves wanting to carry on, that has to be taken out of the hands, like I was talking to you before Mm -hmm. about the midwinter break. We have to then look about what immediately in America, when there was the research into the gridiron game, the soccer people uh, banned heading for the youngsters. And I said, that has to be a serious consideration. It's not even something you see if you watch a lot of junior football, but that needs to be a consideration. The number of times heading in, goes on in practice is looked at. And all these are part of what we feel, taking advice again, from experts in dealing with neurological problems and continuing the research, and that's exactly what's happening now. It, you, can, you can understand the anger and upset, can't you? Pe- well, I can because can I just pe- say, I've just told you, you know, my mother had dementia. Yes. We've got, the, the PFA has a lot of former players, touch wood, there's not been any problems there, but we deal, and I deal, and have dealt on a regular basis with older players who need help and a significant number or a number of those former players with getting old have certain problems and some of those are neurological and that's why we do a number of various remedies to help them with uh, care towards in the nursing home costs, respite for the families, making sure they're getting all the benefits involving them in in, uh, charities such as Sporting Memories, which help to keep their memory going, what they have. There is is a great, great deal of work being done on that, in that area and many other areas. It's not as though we're on a back foot. This is what we're, you know, we've been looking to do this. The FA used to have its own medical department, which I felt was essential for researching into things that are happening in the game that the governing body needs to uh, have a full knowledge of. That declined when the medical department really were just the medical department for the England team rather than looking at the game in general because I always felt the FA as a governing body has the resources to look into such areas of research and I think they're agreeing to do that. So a a final one on just on this then. To, to those people listening who have dads who played football and are now suffering from dementia, if they said to me, we feel let down by the PFA over what has happened to our dads, what would you say to them? I would like them to come in and we would speak to them and go over all that we can do for them and to look at what help we can provide. And that's what we always do with everybody who approaches us, whether it's a member of the family or even a friend or colleague or what have you. And we don't we don't just turn our noses up at anybody. That's the whole point. And I can give you literally hundreds of people who've come on to me like that and been very pleased with the uh, support that they've had. You may well say it's easier said than done, but many of those people Mark mentions would argue you should have been proactive as the PFA rather than reactive. And then comes the... the no, when the co- you say about being... What do you mean by being proactive? You said you went to Jeff Astle. Uh, you, you were in contact with Jeff Astle and his family towards the end of his career as his condition worsened. No, they were in... We, cannot, we have 50,000 former members. We have 
5,000 current members who pay subscriptions. We have some 50,000 former members who don't, but who we look after if they come on to us. And that's done through our various funds that I've talked about to you. So it's we have to, if somebody comes on, then we will deal with it. And when you mention those funds, it's routinely pointed out that the PFA puts around half a million into the benevolent fund and then they draw comparisons to the chief executive earning around two million pounds. How do you we respond a, to that we point? We don't. We put a lot more than... We ju- it's not just benevolent fund. We have different accident funds. We have welfare funds. But but that your salary dwarfs the benevolent fund contribution? Uh, my salary doesn't dwarf it because my salary is made up of... Uh, guaranteed wage and then there's a bonus scheme in there my salary is made public every year and it has to be as part of being a trade union but how do you feel when people point out that your salary regardless that you you don't set it is much higher than the benevolent fund contribution i pay out much more in welfare benefits when everything is added up than my salary our expenditure in a year if you look at our annual accounts is uh, in the region of some, when you take everything into account, is in the region of some 35 million on the income that we get in. There's very few left over for reserves. How did you feel when Scotland came forward and suggested uh, the banning of heading under a certain age when they actually hadn't been putting money into the research previously? I'd already suggested that myself some time ago. As I say, it's not just about what Gordon Taylor says either at the PFA or with the FA or in football. Do you think it's realistic? To ban heading? Under a certain age. I think it's I think it's sensible, bearing in mind that I see a lot of junior football and there's not that much heading of the ball. The quality of pitches is better. And whilst this research is going on, I think, it's important that you know we make sure that youngsters coming into the game and their parents, albeit not had any particular complaints from parents of youngsters, but I think it's important that now the game clearly has the duty of care for those coming into the game, and the same thing should apply in all sports as well. And uh, I think whilst this research is going on, I think that's a step that, it's not where the main problem is. It's when players would develop. But then again, these sort of conditions don't appear because the first research that was done by the FA was probably it was going forward and checking a group of players who were in their late teens and uh, for the next 5, 10, 15 years. But these symptoms don't demonstrate until much later in life. My final question before I throw it up back to Mark to wrap up. Um, If we were to park the very important governance issues, the reviews, the the future of the PFA, what are the biggest issues facing your members, the professional footballers in this country at the moment? I think, again, it's that balance between club football and international football. It's making sure we look after our best players, but it's also making sure that we have 
I don't think we're proud enough of, uh, for a small island of having the most full-time clubs in the world, and that stretches down to the National League as well. I think we should be a lot prouder of having the highest number of full-time clubs, the highest number of full-time players, the highest aggregate attendances. I think, you know, we need to be very proud of what we've got. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean to say that football would necessarily remain the world's most popular participant sport as well as spectator sport there's a lot of other sports coming up there and i think we need to work hard and and if you're asking me you know do we look to the future do we encourage new ideas do we keep trying or do we forever are we going to be forever interfering with the rules of the game are we going to be forever changing it we have to get that right balance and we have to make sure that there's no divine right for us to be the most popular sport either to be watched or to be played I said it was my final question but I've characteristically got one more Uh, it's last from me but by no means least perhaps the most important question of all the racism that has been sort of simmering coming up to the surface incident after incident in recent years the PFA and many others have have launched campaigns and initiatives. Um, are we getting to a point now where none of that is actually making a difference to the actual behaviour we're seeing inside and outside stadiums on social media and the abuse that your member players are facing? Well, I think it's a good question to finish with because football reflects society and I think we would have been, you know, one of the first unions to be so positive when we joined up with Herman Usley when he was the commissioner against racism and we had the kick it out that we joined with, like we did with Tony Adams on Sporting Chance, we did with Lord Usley when it was uh, the kick it out campaign against racism. I think we can, we can be proud of the BAME presence on the field of play There's a lot to do with regard to coaching and obviously in the boardroom as well for us to be to be able to uh, say uh, we've reached our goal with equality issues and respect which you're talking about. With regard to that crowd behavior, I would like to think that we had some (laughs) terrible days in the 80s, some tragedies, some terrible incidents. political as well and I think there was a combined approach with regard to police with stewarding with closed circuit television with laws of the land with a general coming together of of football clubs and spectators and players and we then saw the advent of the Premier League and that's why as you say uh, for it to be becoming as it has Uh, That has to be linked to social media. It has to be linked to the fact that people come come out with the most horrible stuff uh, and hide behind that. And the social media companies are not doing enough about it. And I think, you know, we've been into government and saying to government, look, you know, we have to do all we can to try and stop this. We have to make and find and identify those responsible and the very platforms that they're using to come out with such stuff, then they have to be held responsible as well. And it's what we talked about earlier, that things change and we have to change with it. 
And in order to uh, achieve what we want to achieve, we have to look at new solutions. And I think that's really important that that social media side of things is controlled and uh, it's a combination of more effective sanctions, but also have obviously clearly needed more education on what is civilised and what's not civilised. Because players I speak to tell me that these initiatives don't work, that kick it out is an inappropriate Well, we're in a world where I think lots of people say what, you know, what doesn't work and everybody's good at saying what doesn't work but until they've looked to try it. And at the end of the day, it's like... We're in a world where there's a lot of wars, a lot of conflicts. There's a lot of countries split down the middle. You've seen you've got the president of the strongest country in the world being impeached. We've got Brexit in this country splitting. Are you for it? Are you against it? We've got wars going on, not sorted. And suddenly you're asking what can football and the PFA do? What we can do is use the power of sport because I've seen it be able to bring people together, irrespective of their race, their religion, the culture, the creed and the politics. And that's what football can do. So three things on everything you've said then over the course of this wide-ranging interview. Firstly, does the PFA not have responsibility, but can the PFA help BAME players progress up a path into footballing authorities so that there are more, so that there are more BAME yeah. people on committees running organizations yeah. chief execs what we do we have a we run a course a director's course in, in Birmingham uh, so that they have every confidence of being able to sit around a directorship as directors as companies as a board uh, we have an initiative with the Premier League and the Football League with regard to BME uh, Coaches mm-hmm. coming through and being given job opportunities and it's it's like a bursary system that we have and above all at the very highest level so that it's clearly seen uh, whereby we have a BAME coach with every one of the England teams, both men and women and that was quite apparent when it was uh, in Bulgaria when... Um, you know, you saw that there was it wasn't good, was it, to well, say the least? And uh, he was able to. Chris was able to do a good job with those players, and I think it's really important that we have that that perception. Um, the second one, the NFL have had to pay out a lot of money when it comes to head injuries and dementia. Do you do you think there will be more legal action either against the PFA or against the footballing authorities here? if they look at it from the well, industrial disease point I, of view. I really resent you saying action against the PFA, but if there is, I'll be perfectly happy to defend ourselves because they'll be able to come in and see all that we've done on that and how we've been responsible for getting where we are today, and that's a fact. And the one, without giving names, the reason when I said to you maybe the Premier League and the Football League uh, are not that keen to get on board with regard to the research was because once research comes out and says there is a, a, a causable link, then they've ignored that and they ignore it at their peril. And the final point, which is to one of David's final questions, you talked about the football pyramid. 
and the, all the clubs and, and having the biggest professional setup in the world and how proud you should be of that. Well, you don't want to be proud if you don't think proud's the right word. I just think, No, 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 you know, no, no, my point... Well, you suit yourself. You get your living from sport and I get my living from yeah. sport and I love football. Yeah. And all I'm saying is that it is quite amazing what we do have. And when you ask about what can the PFA do, the PFA can spend its time as it does in trying to keep those clubs alive. Yeah, and that was, and that was my point. Was, well, you took a bit of time getting around <laughs> to it, but you got there all right. in the end. But that's my Go point. On. In an article this week that was in The Guardian that suggested several of the championship clubs ought to break away and form a Premier League too. That got an awful lot of criticism from people who want to protect the pyramid. So if the pyramid is under threat, then that is something that you yeah, will want to protect. there's a lot of people who've considered the championship a Premier League too for some time. It's just whether the Premier League clubs, albeit to be fair to the Premiership, they do with their parachute payments. They are giving a lot of advantages to those clubs who've been there and there would be a case for saying is that competitive integrity of the championship affected when certain clubs are getting those special parachute payments and others aren't and that may be a question for another day because it's also hard it's about if you've got you know if you've got great wealth from certain countries putting monies in and if they own clubs in more than one country and those clubs are going to play each other in a, in a competition the biggest thing about sport is to protect its integrity and its competitiveness. And also, if you're just going to get a monopoly on success by fewer and fewer clubs, then you're losing the very special nature of sport. And when you say, what do you hope to do? You hope to keep that competitiveness that will create that interest and make sure it stays a game that's just both watched and played. Seems a very appropriate place to leave it. Gordon Taylor, thank you very much. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you for that grilling. <laughs> <laughs> well, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic to read in full great articles from David and some of the best football writers around. And by listening to us, you can get a 40% discount on subscription by going to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. All of our podcasts are completely free. Ad-free versions are available to subscribers. That's it. We're back next week. Thanks for listening.